0: Good morning, morning. fellow Scots. Thank you, Victoria. And happy Labor Day. I gave my chapel talk today a title, and that title is Out with the New, In with the Old. It's on the medieval roots of the Reformation. Uh, So this year, in not quite two months, uh, on the 31st of October, Protestant Christians across the world will mark the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing 95 theses to the castle door, or the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, um, an event that's typically regarded as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. My academic training is in late medieval and Reformation history. I think I have mentioned before that I wrote a scintillating doctoral dissertation on Johannes Eustis Landsberger, a 16th century Carthusian monk from Cologne who was an opponent of Luther. Today, we're not going to talk about him. Yes. Uh, but we are going to talk at the beginning of an academic year in which we'll hear a number of such talks about uh, the Reformation. So what I hope to accomplish this morning is a correction of our tendency in the Protestant or evangelical tradition to view the Reformation as something wholly new, uh, as an innovation against a completely corrupt uh, medieval Catholicism, or as a bursting forth of light against the backdrop of absolute darkness. Uh, we're sometimes inclined to view the great Protestant reformers, uh, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Bucer, John Knox, Philip Melanchthon, and especially Martin Luther, as men who dropped from the sky with supernatural insights uh, that transcended uh, the dark ages that preceded them um, reaching back over the chasm of those dark ages to the pure doctrine of the early church um, and I'm gonna go ahead and tell you now you've probably heard it before uh, that's not right um, so I want to undertake my task this morning in two parts uh, first I want to briefly assess how we as 21st century Westerners uh, think versus how the reformers thought and second I want to examine Um, At a superficial level, given the limited time that we have this morning, a couple specific themes that highlight the continuity between the Reformation and the preceding era. Um, So first, how we think. Uh, We here in America, and perhaps this is true of many of you who are from other parts of the world as well, uh, are big fans of the new. Um, We like new things. Uh, How many of you are or know people who are looking forward with eager anticipation to September 12th? A week from tomorrow what happens on the 12th of September the new iPhone yes uh, is introduced we're all looking forward to that right Um, how many of you have been tempted uh, to buy the product that is touted as new and improved Um, even though you already have a perfectly fine working version of that product Um, we like the latest fashions uh, the coolest new music the latest releases the best new games or apps or cars, Uh, in general, we equate new with good. So we don't tend to pay too much attention to uh, the past or to things that are old. Um, This certainly makes sense for us as Americans. Uh, The US is a country that has a fairly short history. Um, When I was an undergraduate here at Covenant, I studied at Oxford and I remember, I'm hearing from a British sociologist who was telling us about how entertaining he found it when he visited Jamestown, uh, the first English, permanent English settlement in North America and found some of the stone foundations there covered with plexiglass and marked with a sign that indicated that they were over 300 years old. Um, and as a Brit, he remarked that if you were to cover everything in England that was over 300 years old with plexiglass, uh, the entire country would be under a bubble. Um, so in America, uh, we're not as interested in the old. We have a real passion for the new, um, a love for innovation. That's a prominent feature of our national psyche Uh, just a few years ago President Barack Obama was here in Chattanooga and during his visit he described Chattanooga as a tornado of innovation Uh, that description of course was regarded as a high compliment Um, what more could one want in America than to be innovative Um, across America many cities have established innovation districts we have one here in Chattanooga Uh, many universities have established innovation centers and there are innovation funds that have sprung up around the country that are ready to provide capital to those with the best new ideas. Uh, So for us, new is good. Uh, And I want to contrast that mentality, uh, that love of the new, with the prevailing mentality of the Middle Ages, uh, which was the prevailing mentality in 1517 when Martin Luther uh, first raised his protest against the Roman Church. Uh, For Luther and for other Protestant reformers and for Christians in the centuries preceding, new was not good. In fact, new was bad Um, here's how sociologist robert bella describes this uh, phenomenon he writes we must not forget that in all the great traditional civilizations the notion of change was charged with horror and fear and was contrasted with that which is eternal which does not change and which alone is of value so the men and women of the 16th century uh, were suspicious of anything that was new or novel novelty was not valued Um, and we retain something of that sense of novelty in modern English uh, in our definition of the word novelties which if you were to pick up the Oxford English dictionary are defined as often useless or trivial but decorative or amusing objects especially ones relying for their appeal on the newness of their design but in the medieval and early modern periods novelty um, was more uh, than simply trivial or unimportant Um, novelty was dangerous Uh, in fact novelty was a synonym for heresy Um, And those two words, heresy and novelty, were used interchangeably. So, for example, in the 13th century, um, the great English philosopher and scientist Roger Bacon was imprisoned for suspected novelties. Uh, And almost 500 years later, uh, in the 17th century, you can find critical references to Anabaptistical novelties. Um, Novelty and innovation fell into the same category as heresy. And So not surprisingly, Protestant reformers um, never distributed novelties at their church picnics, if they had church picnics. Um, nor did they establish innovation centers. Uh, In fact, the great church reformer, John Calvin, um, had this to say to the Genevan Company of Pastors as he lay on his deathbed in 1564. Calvin said, I beg you also to change nothing and to avoid innovation, not because I'm ambitious to preserve my own work, but because all changes are dangerous and sometimes even harmful. So instead of innovation... The reformers talked often of renovation, which comes from the Latin verb renovare, to make new again. Uh, the goal of the reformers, Protestant and otherwise, was never to be novel, uh, but rather to renovate, uh, to make new again, to return to an original form, uh, to reform in keeping with God's word or with prior exemplars. Uh, so with those introductory remarks on how we tend to view innovation, how the reformers viewed innovation out of the way, um, it's not surprising to learn that the reformers made every effort to identify themselves with forerunners, um, that is with thinkers who went before them um, who held similar views uh, and who were regarded by the church as orthodox. Um, And so too, Catholic polemicists uh, sought to identify themselves with orthodox antecedents and to link the Protestants to forerunners who had been deemed heretical. Uh, Both sides wanted to claim accepted church authorities in support of their position. So, uh, for example, in 1521, Luther's right-hand man, Philip Melanchthon, um, responded to a determination that was been, had been made by the theology faculty in Paris. Um, and so in his response, with, which was a treatise entitled Defense of Luther Against the Mad Decrees of the Parisian Theologians, um, they were sort of hyperbolic in their descriptions in the 16th century, uh, Melanchthon argued that while the Parisians, uh, these theologians, drew on respected ancient and medieval thinkers such as Aristotle, Scotus, Occam, and Beale, Uh, that Luther drew on even more authoritative church fathers such as Augustine, Cyprian, and Chrysostom. Um, And if you were to analyze Luther's works, uh, you would see that he does indeed rely heavily on Augustine, that he demonstrates a healthy knowledge of many other patristic and medieval theologians and commentators, um, although he certainly depends on Scripture uh, more than any other source. And John Calvin uh, is a similar case. Um, He makes polemical appeals, uh, appeals that are defending his positions or attacking those of others, um, in both his institutes and in his treatises that demonstrate a great appreciation for the church fathers. Um, Though like Luther, only scripture is ultimately authoritative for Calvin. And also like Luther, Calvin loved Augustine. Um, In fact, in the assessment of Tony Lane, who's a scholar who's done a lot of work on Calvin's relationship to the church fathers, um, Calvin quote, believed that on a wide range of issues, he was simply restoring the teaching of Augustine. Um, Calvin also had deep respect for the four ecumenical councils, uh, Nicaea, Constantinople, Ephesus, and Chalcedon. Um, He said this, quote, I venerate them from my heart and desire that they be honored by all. Um, His works also demonstrate a uh, wide-ranging knowledge of a host of patristic sources, including folks like Irenaeus, Athanasius, Origen, Eusebius, Cyril, Chrysostom, Basil, Gregory the Great, you'll have to take a historical theology course here to understand uh, who all those people are. Um, And Calvin wasn't afraid to cite medieval authorities in support of his views either. He quotes a number of scholastic sources in his works. Um, I find most appreciating that he uh, loved to quote the great Cistercian monk Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, For those of you who don't know, he was a great monastic reformer in the late 11th and early 12th centuries and also the author of the hymns, Jesus, Thou Joy of Loving Hearts and O Sacred Head Now Wounded, which we still sing today. Um, Calvin saw Bernard as a medieval authority with whom he aligned on a number of significant issues including sin uh, free will grace uh, predestination and he quoted bernard on the danger of relying on our own merits and on the necessity of trusting in christ alone Um, so just one example um, he quotes bernard who says our righteousness comes from christ's righteousness and our merit is christ's compassion uh, and mercy so luther and calvin both um, like all the other reformers took pains to align themselves with authorities across the span of church history from the patristic era up through the middle ages whose views were supportive of um, or even the source for their own positions and they they were able to find these authorities uh, because the positions that they took were consistent with those that had been taken by earlier christian thinkers um, folks who had been participants in long-standing debates over the proper understanding of christian theology uh, these these forerunners um, to whom they appealed were in in the words of one Reformation historian Heiko Obermann not primarily to be regarded as individual thinkers who express particular ideas which point beyond themselves to a century to come, but as participants in an ongoing dialogue, not always friendly, that continued into the 16th century. Um, Or here's how uh, Luther's contemporary Erasmus, the great Dutch humanist, put it. Uh, Erasmus said, these things, the matters that were debated in the Reformation, um, used to be argued to and forth by scholastic theologians. If I were a judge, I would not dare to condemn a man to death for taking a stand on any of these issues, nor would I be willing to suffer death for them myself. So, in general, the Reformers weren't trying to be innovative. Um, rather, they were seeking to align themselves with sides in theological debates that have been taking place for centuries. And so, in order to better illustrate that point, um, I want to spend a little time on two issues that really lay at the center of the Reformation debates, and that I think demonstrate in particular, the positions that were taken by Martin Luther, the first Protestant reformer, um, were not innovations, were nothing new. Um, So those two issues are the authority of scripture and justification by faith uh, Now works, or if you want the Latin, sola scriptura and sola fide. Um, So that sola scriptura principle, and I'm sure you've heard this before, that scripture alone is fully authoritative and hence the only infallible rule of faith and practice um, is often viewed by people as a reformation innovation. It certainly contrasted with the notion that had been promulgated by the Roman Catholic Council of Trent in 1546, uh, which ruled that the truths of the gospel are revealed, quote, in the written books and in the unwritten tradition. Or to put it in other words, that that tradition and scripture were equally authoritative. Um, And so many of you are likely familiar with Luther's famous statement at the Diet of Worms in 1521 when he was on trial for his views, and he said unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the holy scriptures or by evident reason for I can believe neither pope nor councils alone as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves I consider myself convicted by the testimony of holy scripture which is my basis my conscience is captive to the word of God thus I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound God help me amen Those words, which leave no room for extra biblical authoritative tradition, have often been characterized as an innovation, Um, but were they? Well, in fact, the the idea that tradition would have equal authority with scripture was not universally accepted, um, either in the Middle Ages or in the era of the church fathers. Um, Debate had occurred since the patristic era about the place or role of extra biblical tradition in the church. And while there were several nuanced positions on this question, most sort of fell into one of two camps. Um, In the first, it was held that Christians should give equal respect to the teachings of scripture and to unwritten church tradition. Um, The idea was that there was an extra scriptural or extra scriptural apostolic tradition um, that had been handed down in the church. And that tradition was held to be just as authoritative as scripture. Um, And proponents of that view often pointed to the fourth century Cappadocian father, Basil the Great, as one of the key authors of that view. Um, The second, an older view, which was traced by proponents to Irenaeus and Tertullian in the third century, um, held that scripture itself has canonical authority, uh, that only scripture has canonical authority, that only the Bible is authoritative revelation from God. Um, Tradition, in that view, is is understood simply as the history of obedient interpretation of the authoritative scriptures. Um, The Bible is sufficient in itself, providing all that's necessary for faith and practice. So the debate among Christian theologians over which of these was the proper understanding of the relationship between scripture and tradition continue right through the middle ages um, toward the end of that period in the 14th century the english theologian john Wycliffe and the czech priest uh, priest and professor jan hus were typically viewed as forerunners of the reformation um, both held the view that scripture alone had ultimate authority in the church they believed that tra- tradition only had authority when it re- represented a common and clear consensus of the church fathers on matters of biblical interpretation and both of those men were condemned as heretics um, with that view being only one of the issues that got them into trouble with church authorities uh, many people are familiar with Wycliffe and Huss uh, so i want to provide one other example um, that demonstrates that the reformers concern for the canonical authority of scripture was nothing new um, that it wasn't innovative and this time i want going to give you an example from a late medieval figure who wasn't condemned for his views uh, so in 1489 when martin luther was only six years old Vessel Hansfort, a Dutch theologian, that sounds like a Dutch name, doesn't it, Hansfort, um, who had taught in the faculty at the University of Cologne, one of the leading universities in Europe, received a letter from Jacob Hoek, another Dutch academic, um, who had previously been the rector of the University of Paris. So this is two uh, theologian academics. You can pick, like, your two favorite theology professors and envision them having correspondence um, via handwritten parchment. Uh, and so Hansfort had rejected uh, plenary indulgences, this medieval practice of selling forgiveness for the, from the temporal penalty for sins. Um, and in his letter, Hoke criticized Hansfort's position along with his views on the authority of Scripture and tradition. And in his response uh, to Hoke, Hansfort maintained that a Christian should not quote subscribe to any statement of an assembly against his conscience so long as it seems to him to assert anything contrary to Scripture. Um, And then he went on to write, As long as it seems to me that the pope or theologians or any school assert a position contradicting the truth of scripture, my concern for scriptural truth obliges me to give it first place. And after that, I'm bound to examine the evidence on both sides of the question, since it's unlikely that the majority would err. But in every case, I owe more respect to canonical scripture than to human assertions, regardless of who holds them. Now, I mean, when you hear that statement, it almost sounds like Luther's famous statement at Worms, and you have to acknowledge that what Luther said at Worms was not something wholly new. Um, Rather, he was giving voice to a tradition that could be traced throughout the history of the church, um, even up to this person who was his immediate chronological predecessor, uh, Vassal Hansfort. A similar reality holds when you consider... uh, the most prominent of Luther's theological breakthroughs, um, his understanding of justification by faith alone. Um, So, some quick background, you may already know this. Luther's a biblical theologian by training. Um, He is a member of the order of observant Augustinian hermit friars, which was a strict reformist movement within the longer standing order of Augustinian hermit friars, who claimed Augustine as their spiritual forefather. Um, So no surprise, Augustine looms large in Luther's story. And as you probably know, one of the most prominent and consequential episodes in Augustine's theological career was his battle with Pelagius in the early 5th century. And that conflict centered around doctrines of predestination and justification and addressed the roles of grace and merit in the salvation of believers. And for many years, modern scholars believe that with a few isolated exceptions, Augustinianism was largely forgotten in the Middle Ages. Um, in other words, they tended to view Luther and his discovery of Augustinian views of justification as an innovation. But uh, the historical record makes it clear that the doctrine of justification had made a pre- maintained a pretty central place in Western theological discourse uh, at least since the time of Augustine, um, and that awareness of and debate about and even advocacy for Augustine's positions never disappeared. Um, Augustine's positions against Pelagius were confirmed by the Council of Orange in 529, a century after Augustine first wrote. On this and numerous of the famed medieval doctors of the church uh, affirmed his views as well including Peter Lombard who was the author of the most widely used theology textbook of the Middle Ages Um, and Calvin quoted Lombard approvingly uh, on this subject Um, likewise medieval thinkers were condemned uh, for adopting positions contrary to Augustine among those was Peter Abelard some of you may have read the the letter uh, letters of Abelard to Heloise in high school who was condemned at the Council of Saul in 1141 for his opinion that free will as such suffices to perform something good. So discussions among theologians on the roles of faith and grace and good works in salvation were common throughout the Middle Ages, and Augustinian views, like Luther had, um, were regularly staked out. And so Luther certainly regarded himself as recovering an authentic Pauline and Augustinian soteriology or doctrine of salvation, uh, but he was not doing so without precedence or without sources. Um, other, others before him had taken up these same Augustinian emphases on prevenient grace and the bondage of will and predestination, um, despite the fact that those were sometimes viewed as undercutting Christian morality and ethics. Uh, both Wycliffe and Huss, who I mentioned earlier, believed that meritorious human action was impossible apart from Christ, um, though interestingly Luther did not cite them, which is probably a good idea since they were burned at the stake. Um, so to 14th century Oxford academic Thomas Bradwardine, um, who wrote a theological work just a century earlier uh, than Luther, or over, a little over a century earlier on, against the Pelagians. And Luther gives a lot of credit to Gregory of Rimini, who was another um, Augustinian hermit friar and an excellent, uh, wrote an excellent book on grace and free will. And perhaps the most significant influence on Luther uh, was Johann von Staupitz, um, who had been Luther's superior and his confessor, in the Augustinian order. Um, Luther acknowledged his indebtedness to Staupitz on numerous occasions and even went so far as to say, I received everything from Dr. Staupitz. Um, Staupitz, Luther's superior and confessor, never left the Roman Catholic Church, so he's not a Protestant reformer, Um, but he clearly held Augustinian views on justification, um, the same ones that have been championed by these other theologians before him. And so in For example, I'll just give you a a quote from Staupitz's uh, treatise Eternal Predestination and its Execution in Time, which he published in 1517 just before Luther nailed his theses to the door. Staupitz wrote since faith in Christ is so necessary that without it it is impossible to please God and since we are unable to acquire faith by our own means, it is clear that what flesh and blood does not reveal is doubtless a gift of God and not the result of our works. Therefore let no one pride himself that it is that it is because of his merits that he is enrolled among the faithful and let no one claim for nature what properly belongs to grace. Uh, Staupitz emphasizes throughout this treatise uh, that man cannot earn his salvation by works, that he must have faith in order to be saved and that his faith comes by grace. Um, it can come by no other means since in Staupitz's words uh, man's nature is incapable of knowing or wanting or doing good. Um, only Christ's merits are sufficient to save, um, or to put it another way again in Staupitz's words, uh, the origin of the work of Christian life is predestination, its means is justification, and its aim is glorification and, or thanksgiving. All these are the achievements not of nature, but of grace. So when you consider Luther's Reformation breakthrough on justification, um, his understanding of salvation by grace through faith, uh, we shouldn't view that as an innovation. Uh, rather, Luther is adopting a position had been held by others before him in a long debate that took place within the church over the role of faith and grace and works and free will in man's salvation. Um, he wasn't creating a new perspective. Uh, rather, he was drawing on the deep and rich resources of a well-established tradition that had its proponents in eras that, that we might not even reflexively associate with that view. Um, so, w- what are the implications for us? Uh, that's a lot of sort of heady academic uh, background. What does that mean for us now? Um, Well, three things, I think. And the first of those is this, that I think we ought to be encouraged um, by this long and unbroken cloud of witnesses to the truths of the gospel uh, and the glories of Scripture. Um, Particularly as we mark in this year the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant Reformation, um, we should take heart in the fact that in the centuries leading up to 1517, uh, many Christians held and promoted and defended doctrines such as the authority of Scripture and justification by grace through faith uh, that we too in the 21st century hold dear. Um, as Protestants, I think we're tempted to view these centuries preceding the Reformation as dark ages um, or to view the medieval church as hopelessly corrupt. Uh, but there were faithful Christian uh, thinkers and writers throughout those centuries, um, and their contributions proved to be very valuable to uh, the reformers of the 16th century. Um, and so though an era in church history may look dark um, or obscure from our vantage point uh, the Holy Spirit moves even in the most challenging of times Um, so that's one one lesson Uh, a second and related one is that we ought to be willing to consider resources that come from places that are outside of our immediate comfort zone Uh, one thing that's clear from the career of the reformers is that they read widely that they read patristic and medieval authors, uh, theologians, with whom they agreed and with whom they disagreed. Um, In some instances, they seem genuinely surprised to have discovered an insight in a source where they weren't expecting one. Um, And so I think we too ought to be willing to stretch ourselves a little bit, uh, perhaps even read authors from outside of our immediate tradition um, who might add insight to or strengthen our faith. Um, Third, and, and finally, um, I think we ought to remember that great breakthroughs in the history of the Christian faith uh, haven't come by way of creating something new, uh, but by way of returning to something old. Uh, in the modern world, we have a fascination with new things. Uh, much of our culture pulls us toward the new. Um, and as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be willing to resist that tendency uh, to live counterculturally, to appreciate uh, old things that have been handed down to us. I'm not rejecting new things out of hand, Uh, but not blindly embracing them either, um, and certainly not ignoring old things. Just as the reformers showed deference to the Christian thinkers who had gone before them um, to the tradition of the church, uh, we too should be willing to look to uh, old and tried and true uh, resources for our Christian walk. And like the reformers, we should never forget um, that only scripture, uh, the revelation of a God who reveals himself as the ancient of days um, is fully authoritative. Hence, whatever we adopt from those whom we read or whom we listen to uh, needs to be uh, in keeping with Scripture. Um, And when it is, it provides for us a deeper and a richer understanding of the remarkable gift of salvation uh, that we enjoy through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, So as I close today, I want to leave you guys um, with this reminder from the prophet Jeremiah. And this is from Jeremiah 6, verse 16, where Jeremiah writes, uh, Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is, and walk in it, and find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, ancient of days, we pray that you would make us new conforming us into the exemplar of your son by the work of your holy spirit we pray that just as you revived many uh, 500 years ago at the dawn of the reformation we pray that you too would revive us and we pray this in the name of our savior and king jesus christ amen